0: just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.
1: All right, Jerry, you ready to roll?
0: Yes,
2: my dear.
1: (laughs) Welcome to Inside the Vatican with America Media. Each week, veteran Vatican reporter Gerard O'Connell and I take you behind the headlines for an intergenerational conversation about the biggest stories out of the Vatican. This week, we're taking a look inside the Cardinal's big meeting at the Vatican.
0: They haven't had a meeting like this in almost eight years, and uh, while the formal agenda is church reform, it comes amid rumors swirling about a possible papal resignation. San Diego's own Bishop Robert McElroy is now a Cardinal in the Catholic Church.
1: Up next, we'll cover the beatification of Pope John Paul I. In
0: 1978,
1: at the age of just 65. A miracle attributed to him has now placed him on the path to sainthood. And we ask a question that's becoming more and more pressing. Should we really be canonizing so many recent popes? Papa. I'm Colleen Dulli. This is Inside the Vatican. Good morning from New Orleans, Jerry.
2: Good afternoon from a hot and humid Rome, Colleen.
1: Jerry, last week we told our listeners about the meeting of the world's cardinals at the Vatican. Uh, They were discussing the Pope's new constitution for the Roman Curia, that's called Predicate Evangelium, or preach the gospel. Uh, And as we've recapped on the show before, the big change it made was that it moved the evangelization office to be the top office in the Vatican, and it renamed all the offices to dicasteries rather than congregations and all this other stuff. But Jerry, you've been working on finding out what happened inside that meeting because no press was allowed. But unlike a conclave, the cardinals are still allowed to talk about it. So can you remind me like, how many cardinals were there than how many you've talked to?
2: Well, there were 197 participants.
1: How many cardinals are there in the
2: world? There are 226 cardinals in the world, okay. but the participants included the top officials of the Secretariat of State mm-hmm. and the Patriarchs, so another seven. So I, I would say around 185 cardinals out of the 226 And you've talked to quite a few of these cardinals, right? I don't want to give a specific number unless anybody raise questions. (laughs) That's all right. But uh, I've spoken to a lot from the different continents. I think this this is always essential, not just to talk to Europeans, but to talk to Asians, to talk to Africans, uh, to talk to Latin Americans, and to talk to North Americans. So I've spoken to representatives of all of these continents.
1: And you did a big interview with the newest U.S. American Cardinal, Cardinal Robert McElroy. And he kind of broke down in your interview, on the record, what topics were focused on most in this meeting, and also gave an idea of how it unfolded. So we know from him and from your other sources that there was kind of a general plenary session where the topic, the the basics of the constitution were laid out, and then the participants all split into language groups, had some discussions about the document, then they all got back together, one representative from each. Language group gave a report. And then at the end, people could stand up and address the group and respond to what they had heard. So that's how it went down. But can you give us a rundown of the big topics that you talked about with Cardinal McElroy?
2: Well, essentially, there were four big topics. One was the, and the one which attracted most attention, I think, was the decision by the Pope in the Constitution to separate the power of governance from that of orders. In other words, that you can have role of responsibility where you actually exercise governance in the Roman Curia without being a priest, a deacon, a bishop, not having the holy orders. And this means that it has opened the door for lay people to be head of effectively, they call them dicasteries here, but in English, that's not really a word we use. We would say departments or offices, etc. The discussion that emerged was should lay people or can lay people be head of all these Vatican departments? And the feeling was there are some departments which require the head to have holy orders, to be a bishop or a a clergyman.
1: That was important to discuss because it wasn't laid out clearly in the Constitution which offices needed to be headed by clerics and which were open to lay people.
2: Yes, what Pope Francis did in the Constitution and what he said was that, of course, in the implementation of the Constitution, some other uh, adjustments would be made. And so I, I, I got the impression from this meeting that there are at least three departments which would require the head of the department to be in holy orders.
1: Okay, which ones?
2: Well, the Congregation of Bishops, for example.
1: Sure. Even though there are now lay members of that congregation.
2: Yeah, on, on the Congregation of Bishops, we know there are three women for the first time ever. So one office, one department which re, which they re, many people felt required the, the head of the office to be in holy orders was Congregation of Bishops. The second one was the Congregation of Clergy, and for, for somewhat similar. And the third one was the uh, Apost. Dolic penitentiary, the major penitentiary, the the one who also at the time of the conclave is the one who has the power to grant forgiveness for major sins, basically, or indulgences. Whether there are others that might require this, I, I haven't heard them named, but the conclusion seems to be, and I've spoken to several cardinals on this, they expect the Pope to make such clarifications, identifying which office really requires the power of orders in the head of the office.
1: Do you think that'll happen soon?
2: I would not like to predict how soon is soon, but that it will happen eventually, I I would say yes.
1: So this question of separation of governance from holy orders was the first big topic. It relates to the second topic, which was kind of this tension between a synodal versus a hierarchical church. I mean, this comes up in a lot of discussions about synodality, right, this idea of sharing the power of making decisions, trying to get a lot of input from people who are not high up in the hierarchy. But then in the end, it does come back to the bishops, to a certain extent, to make the final decisions.
2: And I think Cardinal McElroy, in the interview with me, explained it very clearly. He said that the synodal church is really the basis. This does not exclude the concept of hierarchical church. It's included in it. But if you start with the hierarchical church, in other words, those who take decisions, etc., then you're putting synodal into a very secondary place. To make good decisions, you've got to listen. And that's a fundamental element of the synodal church. You've got to listen, you've got to discuss, and then you try to discern together. And it's at that point that the decisions are made, once the discernment has been made. Uh, If you reverse it around and start with this one as the power of decision, you are somehow inverting the whole process. And so Cardinal Mark McElroy, in the interview with me, explained very clearly that in the International Theological Commission's document on synodality, which anybody who's really interested in the subject should read, it will be very clear that there in, in the heart of it is also the hierarchical church. He said nobody who's supporting the synodal church eliminates the hierarchical element in the church. That is taken for granted and affirmed strongly. He said, when Pope Francis has made many statements about the synodal church, he's also affirmed the other very strongly. And
1: I think it's helpful for us to know that these conversations that we've been having and that anybody who's following this synodal process are having about this tension between synodality and hierarchy, those conversations are also being had among the cardinals in the halls of the Vatican. Let's talk real quick about the two other topics that the cardinals discussed. These were more concrete reforms. So, one was the Vatican financial reform that Pope Francis has been undertaking in steps, and there have been too many to recount at this point. And then the others are the reforms he's made to prevent sexual abuse.
2: There was great concern about the finances because they have seen over the years, and even in recent years, even in this pontificate, the financial question hitting the headlines in the news, giving the idea that something was corrupt in at the base, in the central office of the church. They wanted to know, understand clearly, first of all, what Francis has done. And on the Monday evening, that at the end of the first day, they were given a page which outlined many of the steps that had been taken, especially in relation to the Vatican Bank. And at that point, also Cardinal Schönbrunn from Vienna, the Archbishop of Vienna, who's a Dominican, but who is exercises great influence and authority in the church, he, he spoke and explained, you know, we've really come a long way, and this is what's happened. Read this page overnight. And so ne- next day they discussed it in the small groups. There they said, Yes, it seems Francis is on the right path. He's made taken good steps. And so we're happy with what we see, but we want to follow carefully and to see that. What has been put in place is actually what happens.
1: And what about on the abuse prevention front?
2: They all felt that the credibility of the church has been really undermined by this. There was really this attention. We have to be vigilant. We have to implement the regulations, the the law that Francis has put out.
1: Do you know what reforms they were discussing?
2: Well, I I think that one of the biggest ones was the uh, Vost Estes. The the document, uh, you are the light of the world, which requires all members of the church, starting with bishops, heads of religious orders, priests, anybody in positions of uh, responsibility, but also the, the, the lay faithful to really denounce abuse as soon as they become aware of it.
1: We'd call it mandated reporting.
2: Vigilance, vigilance, vigilance was, was the message that came out. We have to follow the, the the steps that have been taken. We have to apply them and we have to also educate our people. Now, uh, they didn't spell out so much, but I, I'm told that in the small discussion groups, this came out from the local experience of the cardinals in the different dioceses.
1: All right. So let's go back to that question about the kind of breakdown of opinion, because, you know, the picture you've painted and that came out in your interview with Cardinal McElroy is one of a lot of support for the reforms that Francis has made and this intention to be vigilant and continue trying to implement them. But I remember when we were going into this meeting, there were some reports in the Italian press that some cardinals were going into the meeting planning to push back against the Pope's reforms, specifically on this question of separating power from holy orders. So what did you hear from the cardinals you spoke to about how any resistance to the Pope's reforms played out in the meeting?
2: Well, I think the cardinals themselves, many of them, were surprised that there was such little opposition To the steps that Francis has taken. I've spoken to cardinals, obviously, people who are supportive of Francis, but also some who are not.
1: Jerry, I wanna ask you a question about someone who was not so happy about this because I'm I'm wondering whether this this criticism that he made was reasonable. So Cardinal Brandmuller, who our listeners might remember as one of the dubia cardinals, one of the cardinals who issued a correction to Pope Francis after Amoris Laetitia, he released some comments that he had jotted down for the cardinals meeting, but then didn't end up delivering. Uh, and he sent them to an Italian blogger who published them in full. But in it, he argues that... Cardinals from the peripheries shouldn't be allowed to vote for the next pope. That is not the part I'm going to ask you about the legitimacy of. I think that that would go down very negatively among the majority of the College of Cardinals. But I wondered about something else that he criticized, which was how the meeting was structured. He said that because you had to put your name in to be selected to speak in front of everyone at the kind of discussion part at the end, he didn't think that that provided a real opportunity for dialogue, for responding in real time to what people were saying. And I I was like, that actually, that sounds like it could be a legit criticism. So I was wondering uh, what you make of it.
2: Well, the the structure, as you explained at the beginning, was that people, the plenary session, they broke into 12 small group, language groups. Uh, Then there was feedback from the language group. And then people were invited to put down their names if they wanted to raise a point or ask a question. Mm-hmm. As happens in every synod, you can get more people wanting to ask questions than there's actually time for. Mm-hmm. And so it's not a question that the, the moderator of the meeting chose number one, number seven, and number 10 of those who were put down the names for asking questions. It's just that some people, when they ask a question, take it more than the four minutes they're given. And so you can run out of time. I don't know what happened in this specific case, but to suggest that people were being excluded from being able to speak because of some internal mechanism It's not true.
1: All right. You and I are going to take a break real quick. And when we come back, we'll look at this weekend's beatification of Pope John Paul I. And we'll talk about a question that continues to come up in these stories about popes being canonized, which is, should we be canonizing so many recent popes? Stay with us. John Paul I, who reigned for 33 days in 1978, was beatified at a ceremony in St. Peter's Square this weekend. Jerry, you were there. What was the scene like?
2: Well, as I described in my story, we've had wonderful hot weather, really high temperatures up to now. But this weekend, we had thunder, lightning, and rain as the ceremony started. Mm. I was there under my umbrella in the square, and but the atmosphere was great, mm-hmm. really uh, You had 25,000 people, I suppose 80% of them Italian, but also people from many other countries. Mm -hmm. There was uh, this real kind of, I I think, joy. I I call it singing in the rain.
1: (laughs) Sure. We should say the Italians were super excited because this was the last Italian pope.
2: This was the last Italian pope. And uh, somewhere I said in more than 450, 456, I think, in a row he was the last of them. After that, you had John Paul II, Polish Pope. After that, the German Pope. And after that, the Argentine Pope.
1: Speaking of Argentina, the reason that John Paul I was beatified this weekend was because of a miracle that was attributed to him in Argentina. And actually, you can tell us a little bit about that. It was a medical miracle. But the doctor who was caring for this girl who was healed got to uh, do one of the readings at the Mass.
2: Well, the the, the priest, uh, there was this 11-year-old girl who had a real uh, cerebral problem, and the doctors actually arrived at the conclusion she had days and perhaps hours to live. And this priest, who was close to the family, the priest suggested to the mother, let us pray together to John Paul I for a cure for this young girl. And so they prayed. And then the following day, this young girl, who should have been on death's bed, began to recover. So anyway, the cardinal at the beginning read the brief biography. He recalled that Pope John Twenty-Third made Albino Luciani a bishop. Paul VI made him patriarch of Venice and made him a cardinal. Albino Luciani, the future John Paul I, attended all the four sessions of Vatican II between 1962-1965. So he, he was really a, a pope of the council.
1: And he really wanted to spend his pontificate implementing the council.
2: I, I think I mentioned to you once, Colleen, that I, I knew an African bishop who then became Cardinal Lorenzi, who stayed with Bishop Luciani in the north of Italy. And when he was back in Nigeria and he heard news of the election of this man as pope, he said, oh, my God, what have they done to him? Well, he served as pope for 33 days, and it took them 44 years, Colleen, to beatify him. And thanks to this miracle, which took place in Argentina, and he was beatified by an Argentine pope. And Francis, in his homily, as I wrote, Spoke about uh, everybody called him the smiling pope.
1: Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, so he came after John the 23rd and Paul VI and took their names in combination. But John the 23rd was known for his sense of humor. You can still look up books of his jokes and they're really funny. So, why was it such a big deal that Luciani was the smiling pope? Was it that out of the ordinary?
2: Well, from the moment he came out on the balcony, Colleen, he he was smiling.
1: <laughs> Please tell your story.
2: Well, I I finished university and I was came to Rome for a holiday in
1: 1978.
2: And I happened to be in Rome 1978. I happened to be there when Paul the Sixth died, and when John Paul I was elected Pope. And I remember him coming out on the balcony, Colleen, mm-hmm. and I I really didn't know from Adam who he was at that time. Yeah. Uh, but the Italians were all excited, and then he spoke in this what i what seemed to me was a squeaky voice. <laughs> uh, it was clear from from the first words he spoke that he was connecting with the people. they were delighted, and this was the case throughout thirty three days of his short time as Pope. And uh, I, I was really struck by that. So I, I, I was anxious to be in the square for his beatification.
1: Yeah. Jerry, we've been alluding to the fact that John Paul First pontificate was only 33 days. Um, and this is kind of the unfortunate part of how history remembers him, which is that there were a lot of rumors about his death uh, possibly being murder or foul play. Uh, they've been pretty thoroughly debunked right now, but I think that we should acknowledge that you know, the story of his death has in many ways kind of eclipsed the story of his life. The Vatican's had to do a lot of work to debunk those rumors. I was wondering if you could just speak briefly to that.
2: Well certainly the story that he could have been murdered a book by David Yallop a British journalist it made him known throughout the world it gave him a visibility that he might not have had even for his 33 days pope at the root was a big blunder by the Vatican it was a sister a nun who discovered that he was dead in his bed and some of the cardinals and bishops at the time in the Vatican felt it was unseemly improper that a nun a woman should find him dead in bed. And so they suggested it was his secretary who wasn't there at the time. They tried a cover-up, and it really backfired in in a most extraordinary way. Then they refused. There was this proposal that there be an autopsy, and this was turned down. And then, thanks to an Italian woman journalist who was the vice postulator of the cause, Stefania Alaska. She's written a book which I would really strongly recommend to anybody who's interested. The September Pope It's published by Our Sunday Visitor. And uh, it, it really, in a clinical, almost surgical way, it goes through all the charges, provides all the evidence. So at the end of the day, you have no doubt in your head that he died of natural causes.
1: Yeah, although the uh the myth reigns very popular for people who are thinking they didn't know about this, but it sounds familiar, it is the plot of the Godfather Part Three. Um, all right. I want to get to a bigger question here, which is, you know, John Paul I being beatified after such a short pontificate raises a question that continues to come up. This came up after the McCarrick report when now Saint John Paul II was uh, accused of having not taken action against Cardinal McCarrick, the question is: Should we? Should we really be canonizing these recent popes?
2: Well, first of all, I, I think a very, very short recap of history up to 9, and thirty three, almost the first millennium of Christianity. The saints were declared by a popular acclamation at the lo- local level, and you had about fifty something. The first 50, is it four popes, or 50-something popes uh, were uh, declared saints. 30-something of them were martyrs. Now, it's reckoned that maybe there have been over 10,000 people declared saints in the church. But normally, especially since 1588 in the Vatican, the Vatican, the hope of the day, set up the congregation for the causes of saints. And since then, you've had a, a very strict process. But the average time from the death of the person to the person being canonized, the average period has been about 181 years. Oh my gosh, okay. In 1983, John Paul II changed the system and said the costs for your canonization of beatification could be introduced after five years. It was before that 50 years. And th- this allowed Mother Teresa to be canonized within nine years of her death,
1: right.
2: which really is extraordinary. John Paul II himself was canonized within nine years of his death. Mm-hmm. I've spoken to several people who worked many years in the congregation for the causes of the saints what one writer called the Saint-making factory. Yeah, he says, especially with popes, you should wait fifty years before you even open their cause. It was John Paul II who changed the system,
1: and it's John Paul II who's making us question the system now.
2: It's John Paul II who's raised questions, but of course, uh, look at the question of Pius XII, mm-hmm, sure. who's also went on the path to saint, II, but was blocked because over the question of the decisions he took when he was pope at the time of hitler so uh, the uh, many of the jewish people uh, the israelis they, they objected to his beatification so that was put on hold so there are many there are many questions here Colleen. the first one i think is is it too short a time to allow a case to be opened after 5 years as ha- as happened when john paul ii revised the process in 1983 Secondly, you have to realize that only some people's cause ever comes to the Vatican congregation. Absolutely, I mentioned Cardinal O'Rinze earlier. There is only one blessed in the 14 West African countries, and that is a Nigerian. And it happened because Cardinal O'Rinze, who was a student in the seminary, and this man was his spiritual advisor, and he went on to be a, a Cistercian monk. Uh, he pushed his cause because to have a cause you need people behind you. You need a lot of uh, uh, of investigation, of research. You need money to get lawyers.
1: You need a lot of money.
2: You need a lot of money. Yeah, and you you know this, colleague.
1: I've I've learned this firsthand. Yeah, I've learned this firsthand because I uh, was volunteering with the Dorothy Day canonization cause, which is very well funded. Obviously, it's backed by the Archdiocese of New York, and even though we tried to involve volunteers as much as possible, there were more than 100 people involved in in volunteering for the cause, the Archdiocese is still expected to spend close to $1 million on Dorothy Day's cause. And as I learned about this and kind of saw the process firsthand, I started to realize why it is mostly, like, popes, heads of religious orders, and then, you know, maybe uh, some other saints who have kind of well-funded causes who are able to be canonized at all. But this that statistic about only one blessed from the 14 countries of West Africa is, is insane and really reveals the dis- disparity there. When I look at this process, I just can't help but think like this is the next thing I would like to see Pope Francis reform.
2: Well, you know that religious orders like their founders to be declared a saint or a holy person. Movements are in the same strategy.
1: Yeah, lay movements, sure.
2: Yeah. but but ordinary people in poor parishes, they have other concerns. They know, they recognise a good person. They recognise when a good when a person. You you see at the funerals of some people, enormous crowds turning up, and these people never, uh, nobody thinks of opening their cause. Maybe they don't even have the money to do it. Maybe they don't have the experts, the researchers. So it's a a whole uh, other question. I think it's a subject for a deep dive, Colleen, because it's fascinating. I mean, because you're all dealing with the fact of miracles, that uh, like this young girl that was cured, who was really on death's door and was cured for the beatification of John Paul One. People tend not to think about miracles in the modern, hyper-technological age, but but these things happen, and people are impressed.
1: Yeah, and honestly, I gotta say, like you know, after having developed a lot of skepticism about this process by having seen the Dorothy Day cause go through, uh, well, not go through, but go through at least the first phase that I worked on, the miracles are the thing that keeps me from thinking okay this whole system is rotten right it's it's the one thing that I'm like okay no there's like there is some truth at the heart of this there is like something holy and beautiful happening even though there's I have so many problems with, with the process
2: Colleen Saints were the result of popular devotion when people people saw Saint Peter and Saint Paul here in Rome executed for Christ it moved them and they set up little altars around them they didn't have a process of canonization but they recognize that this man put his life where his belief was and he paid the price and this impresses people and i i I think this is at the heart of the sainthood
1: yeah yeah i would agree completely and it's i mean to get back to our talk about the roman curia this is this is the greatest witness that leads to evangelization, right? It's these stories that make people want to change their lives. Jerry, that seems like a good place for us to wrap. Uh, Thank you so much for talking with me today. I appreciate it.
2: Thank you, Colin.
1: Inside the Vatican is an America Media podcast. Maggie Van Dorn and Ricardo da Silva are producers. Our sound engineer is Kevin Christopher Robles. We had production help this week from America Media O'Hare fellow Christopher Parker. Our executive producer for audio and video is Sebastian Gomes. If you want to keep up with the latest Vatican coverage from America Magazine, follow us on Twitter at I-N-S-D-E Vatican Pod. That's inside, without the second I, Vatican Pod. And you can find all of our Vatican coverage at americamagazine.org. While you're there, please consider becoming a digital subscriber to America Magazine. It's easy to do, and it's the best way to support our work here on Inside the Vatican. That's all for this week. For America Media with Gerard O'Connell, I'm your host and producer, Colleen Deli. We'll see you next time.
0: Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck. Because every day, there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's Scripture Reflections.